Book One, Chapter Sixteen of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Arachne by George Ebers. Book One, Chapter Sixteen. Herman, with the rose for his friend, fastened in the breastfolds of his chiton, mounted his horse gratefully, and his companion, a sinewy bronze Minianite, who was also to attend to the opening of the fortress gate, did the same. Before reaching the open country, the sculptor had to ride through the whole city, with which he was entirely unfamiliar. Fiercely as the storm was sweeping down the streets and squares, and often as the horseman was forced to hold on to his traveling hat, and draw his clamours closer around him, he felt the anxieties, which had made his night sleepless, and sadden his day, suddenly leave him as if by a miracle. Was it the consciousness of having acted rightly? Was it the friendly farewell which Daphne had given him, and the hope Thyone had aroused, or the expectation of seeing Ledska once more, and at least regaining her goodwill, that had restored his lost light-heartedness? He did not know himself, nor did he desire to know. While formerly he had merely glanced carelessly about him and Pelusium, and only half listened to the explanations given by the veteran's deep voice, now whatever he saw appeared in clear outlines, and awakened his interest, in spite of the annoyances caused by the storm. Had he not known that he was in Pelusium, it would have been difficult for him to determine whether the city he was crossing was an Egyptian, a Hellenic, or a Syrian one. For here rose an ancient temple in the time of the pharaohs, with obelisks and colossal statues before the lofty pylons. Yonder the sanctuary of Poseidon, surrounded by stately rows of Doric columns. And further on, the smaller temple dedicated to the Dioscuri, and the circular Grecian building that belonged to Aphrodite. In another spot, still close to the harbor, he saw the large buildings consecrated to the worship of the Syrian Baal and Astarte. Here he was obliged to wait a while, for the tempest had excited the war elephants, which were returning from their exercising ground, and their black keepers only succeeded with the utmost difficulty in restraining them. Shrieking with fear, the few persons who were in the streets besides the soldiers, that were everywhere present, scattered before the huge, terrified animals. The costume and appearance of the citizens, too, gave no clue to the country to which the place belonged. There were as many Egyptians among them as Greeks, Syrians, and Negroes. Asiatics appeared in the majority only in the marketplace, where the dealers were just leaving their stands to secure their goods from the storm. In front of the big building, where the famous Pelusian Zythus beer was brewed, the drink was being carried away in jugs and wineskins, in ox carts and on donkeys. Here, too, were men loading camels, which were rarely seen in Egypt, and had been introduced there only a short time before. How forcibly all these things riveted Herman's attention, now that no one was at hand to explain them, and no delay was permitted. He scarcely had time for recollection and expectation. Finally the last gate was unlocked, and the ramparts and moats lay behind him. Thus far the wind had kept back the rain, and only scattered drops lashed the riders' faces. 
but as soon as they entered the open country it seemed as if the pent-up floods burst the barriers which retained them above and a torrent of water such as only those dry regions know rushed not in straight or slanting lines but in thick streams whirled by the hurricane upon the marshy land which stretched from pelusium to tennis and on the horsemen the road led along a dike raised above the fields which at this season of the year were under water and herman's companion knew it well for a time both riders allowed themselves to be drenched in silence the water ran down upon them from their broad-brimmed hats and their dripping horses trotted with drooping heads and streaming flanks one behind the other until at the very brick kiln where ledska had recalled her widowed sister's unruly slaves to obedience the guide stopped with an oath and pointed to the water that had risen to the top of the dam and in some places concealed the road from their eyes now it was no longer possible to trot for the guide was obliged to seek the traces of the dike with great caution meanwhile the force of the pouring rain by no means lessened nay it even seemed to increase and the horses were already wading in water up to their fetlocks but if the votive stones the little altars and statues of the gods the bushes and single trees along the sides of the dyke road were overflowed while the travellers were in the region of the marsh they would be obliged to interrupt their journey for the danger of sinking into the morass with their horses would then threaten them even at the brick kiln travellers soldiers and trains of merchandise had stopped to wait for the end of the cloud burst in front of the farmhouse too which herman and his companion next reached they saw dozens of people seeking shelter and the midianite urged his master to join them for a short time at least the wisest course here was probably to yield and herman was already turning his horse's head toward the house when a greek messenger dashed past the beckoning refuge and also by him do you dare ride farther the artist shouted in a tone of warning inquiry to the man on the dripping bay and the latter without pausing answered duty on business for the king then herman turned his steed back toward the road beat the water from his soaked beard with the edge of his hand and with a curt forward announced his decision to his companion duty summoned him also and what another risk for the king he would not fail to do for a friend the midianite shaking his head rode angrily after him but though the violence of the rain was lessening the wind began to blow with redoubled force beating and lashing the boundless expanse of the quickly formed lake with such savage fury that it rolled in surges like the sea and sweeping over it dense clouds of foam like the sand waves tossed by the desert tempests sometimes moaning sometimes whistling the gusts of the hurricane drove the water and the travellers before it while the rain poured from the sky to the earth and wherever it struck splashed upward making little whirlpools and swiftly breaking bubbles what might not myrtillus suffer in this storm this thought strengthened herman's courage to twice ride past other farmhouses which offered shelter at the third the horse refused to wade farther in such a tempest so there was nothing to be done except spring off and lead it to the higher ground which the water had not yet reached the interior of the peasant hut was filled with people who had sought shelter there and the stifling atmosphere which the artist felt at the door induced him to remain outside 
He had stood there dripping barely fifteen minutes, when loud shouts and yells were heard on the road from Pelusium, by which he had come, and upon the flooded dike appeared a body of men rushing forward with marvellous speed. The nearer they came, the fiercer and more bewildering sounded the loud, shrill melody of their frantic cries, mingled with hoarse laughter, and the spectacle presented to the eyes was no less rough and bold. The majority seemed to be powerful men. Their complexions were as light as the Macedonians. Their fair red and brown locks were thick, unkempt, and bristling. Most of the reckless, defiant, bold faces were smooth-shaven, with only a mustache on the upper lip, and sometimes a short imperial. All carried weapons, and a fleece covered the shoulders of many, while chains, ornamented with the teeth of animals, hung on their white, muscular chests. Galatians, Herman heard one man near him call to another. They came to the fortress as auxiliary troops. Philippus forbade them to plunder on pain of death, and showed them, the gods be thanked, that he was in earnest. Otherwise it would soon look here as though the plagues of locusts, flood and fire, had visited us at once. Red-haired men are not the only sons of Typhon. And Herman thought that he had indeed never seen any human beings equally fierce, bold to the verge of reckless madness, as these Gaelic warriors. The tempest which swept them forward, and the water through which they waded, only seemed to increase their enjoyment, for sheer delight rang in their exulting shouts and yells. Oh, yes, to march amid this uproar of the elements was a pleasure to the healthy men. It afforded them the rarest, most enlivening delight. For a long time nothing had so strongly reminded them of the roaring of the wind and the rushing of the rain in their northern home. It seemed a delicious relief after the heat and dryness of the south, which they had endured with groans. When they perceived the eyes fixed upon them, they swung their weapons, arched their breasts with conscious vanity, distorted their faces into terrible threatening grimaces, or raised bugle horns to their lips, drew from them shrill, ear-piercing notes and gloated, with childish delight, in the terror of the gaping crowd, on whom the restraint of authority sternly forbade them to show their mettle. Lust for rapine and greed for booty glittered in many a fiery longing look, but their leaders kept them in check with the sword. So they rushed on without stopping, like a thunderstorm pregnant with destruction, which the wind drives over a terrified village. Herman also had to take the road they followed, and, after giving the Gauls a long start, he set out again. But though he succeeded in passing the marshy region without injury, there had been delay after delay. Here the horses had left the flooded dike road, and floundered up to their knees in the morass. There, trees from the roadside, uprooted by the storm, barred the way. As night closed in, the rain ceased, and the wind began to subside. But dark clouds covered the sky, and the horsemen were still an hour's ride from the place where the road ended, at the little harbor from which travelers entered the boat, which conveyed them to Tennis. The way no longer led through the marsh, but through tilled lands, and crossed the ditches which irrigated the fields on wooden bridges. On their account, in the dense darkness which prevailed, caution was necessary, and this the guide certainly did not lack. He rode at a slow walk in front of the artist, and had just pointed out to him the light at the landing place of the boat, which went to tennis, when Herman was suddenly startled by a loud cry, followed by clattering and splashing. 
with swift presence of mind he sprang from his horse and found his conjecture verified the bridge was broken down and horse and rider had fallen into the broad canal the galatians reached herman from the dark depths and the exclamation relieved him concerning the fate of the midianite the latter soon struggled to the road uninjured the bridge must have given way under the feet of the savage horde unless the gaelic monsters with brute malice had intentionally shattered it the first supposition however seemed to be the correct one for as herman approached the canal he heard moans of pain one of the gauls had apparently met with an accident in the fall of the bridge and been deserted by his comrades with the skill acquired in the wrestling school Herman descended into the canal to look for the wounded man, while his guide undertook to get the horses ashore. Deep darkness considerably increased the difficulty of carrying out his purpose. But the young Greek went up to his neck in the water. He could not become wetter than he was already. So he remained in the ditch until he found the injured man, whose groans of suffering pierced his compassionate heart. He was obliged to release the luckless Gaul from the broken timbers of the bridge, and when herman had dragged him out on the opposite bank of the canal he made no answer to any question a falling beam had probably struck him senseless his hair which herman's groping fingers informed him was thick and rough seemed to denote a gall but a full long beard was very rarely seen in this nation and the wounded man wore one nor could anything be discovered from the ornaments or weapons of this fierce barbarian but to whatever people he might belong, he certainly was not a Greek. The thoroughly unhellenic wrapping up of the legs proved that. No matter. Herman, at any rate, was dealing with someone who was severely injured, and the self-sacrificing pity with which even suffering animals inspired him, and which in his boyhood had drawn upon him the jeers of the companions of his own age, did not abandon him now. Reluctantly obeying his command, the Midianite helped him bandage the sufferer's head, in which a wound could be felt, as well as it could be done in the darkness, and lift him on the artist's horse. During this time, fresh groans issued from the bearded lips of the injured warrior, and Herman walked by his side, guarding the senseless man from the dangers of falling from the back of the horse, as it slowly followed the Midianites. This tiresome walk, however, did not last long. The landing place was reached sooner than Herman expected, and the ferry boat bore the travelers and the horses to tennis. By the flickering light of the captain's lantern, it was ascertained that the wounded man, in spite of his long dark beard, was probably a gall. The stupor was to be attributed to the fall of a beam on his head, and the shock rather than to the wound. The great loss of blood sustained by the young and powerful soldier had probably caused the duration of the swoon. During the attempts at resuscitation, a sailor boy offered his assistance. He carefully held the lantern, and, as its flickering light fell for brief moments upon the artist's face, the lad of thirteen or fourteen asked if he was Herman of Alexandria. A curt, if you will permit, answered the question, considered by the Hellenes as an unseemly one, especially from such a youth. But the sculptor paid no further attention to him for while devoting himself honestly to the wounded man, his anxiety about his invalid friend increased, and Leska's image also rose again before him. At last the ferry-boat touched the land, and when Herman looked around for the lad, he had already leaped ashore, and was just vanishing in the darkness. It was probably within an hour of midnight. 
the gale was still blowing fiercely over the water driving the black clouds across the dark sky sometimes with long-drawn wailing sounds sometimes with sharp whistling ones the rain had wholly ceased and seemed to have exhausted itself here in the afternoon as archias's white house was a considerable distance from the landing-place of the ferry-boat Herman had the wounded warrior carried to it by Beamite sailors, and again mounted his horse to ride to Myrtilus at as swift a trot as the soaked, wretched, but familiar road would permit. Considerable time had been spent in obtaining a litter for the Gaul, yet Herman was surprised to meet the lad who had questioned him so boldly on the ferry-boat coming, not from the landing-place, but running toward it again from the city, and then saw him follow the shore, carrying a blazing torch, which he waved saucily. The wind blew aside the flame and smoke, which came from the burning pitch, but it shone brightly through the gloom, and permitted the boy to be distinctly seen. Whence had the nimble fellow come so quickly? How had he succeeded, in this fierce gale, in kindling the torch so soon into a powerful flame? Was it not foolish to let a child amuse itself in the middle of the night with so dangerous a toy? Herman hastily thought over these questions, but the supposition that the light of the torch might be intended for a signal did not occur to him. Besides, the boy and the light in his hand occupied his mind only a short time. He had better things to think of. With what longing Myrtilus must now be expecting his arrival? But the Gaul needed his aid no less urgently than his friend. Accurately as he knew what remedies relieved Myrtilus in severe attacks of illness, he could scarcely dispense with an assistant or a leech for the other, and the idea swiftly flashed upon him that the wounded man would afford him an opportunity of seeing Ledska again. She had told him more than once about the healing art possessed by old Tabus on the owl's nest. Suppose he should now seek the angry girl to entreat her to speak to the aged miracle worker in behalf of the sorely wounded young foreigner? Here he interrupted himself. Something new claimed his attention. A dim light glimmered through the intense darkness from a bit of rising ground by the wayside. It came from the temple of Nemesis, a pretty little structure belonging to the time of Alexander the Great, which he had often examined with pleasure. Several steps led to the anteroom, supported by ionic columns, which adjoined the naos. Two lamps were burning at the side of the door, leading into the little open cella, and at the back of the consecrated place, the statue of the winged goddess was visible in the light of a small altar fire. In her right hand, she held the bridle and scourge, and at her feet stood the wheel, whose turning indicates the influence exerted by her power upon the destiny of mortals. With stern severity that boded evil, she gazed down upon her left forearm, bent at the elbow, which corresponds with the L, the just measure. Herman certainly now, if ever, lacked both time and inclination to examine again this modest work of an ordinary artist, yet he quickly stopped his weary horse. For in the little proneos, directly in front of the cellar door, stood a slender figure clad in a long floating dark robe, extending its hands through the cellar door toward the statue in fervent prayer. She was pressing her brow against the left post of the door, but at her feet, on the right side, cowered another figure, which could scarcely be recognized as a human being. This, too, was a woman. Deeply absorbed in her own thoughts, she was also extending her arms toward the statue of Nemesis. Herman knew them both. At first he fancied that his excited imagination was showing him a threatening illusion, but no. 
the erect figure was Ledska, the crouching Wangula, the sailor's wife whose child he had rescued from the flames, and who had recently been cast out by her husband. Ledska escaped his lips in a muttered tone, and he involuntarily extended his hands towards her as she was doing toward the goddess, but she did not seem to hear him, and the other woman also retained the same attitude, as if hewn from stone. Then he called the supplicant's name in a loud tone, and the next instant still more loudly, and then she turned, and in the faint light of the little lamp, showed the marvelously noble outlines of her profile. He called again, and this time Leska heard anguished yearning in his deep tones, but they seemed to have lost their influence over her, for her large dark eyes gazed at him so repellently and sternly that a cold tremor ran down his spine. Swinging himself from his horse, he ascended the steps of the temple, and in the most tender tones at his command exclaimed, Ledska, severely as I have offended you, Ledska, oh, don't say no, will you hear me? No, she answered firmly, and before he could speak, continued, this place is ill-chosen for another meeting. Your presence is hateful to me. Do not disturb me a moment longer. As you command, he began hesitatingly, but she swiftly interrupted with the question, Do you come from Pelusium, and are you going directly home? I did not heed the storm on account of Myrtilus's illness, he answered quietly, and if you demand it, I will return home at once. But first let me make one more entreaty, which will be pleasing also to the gods. Get your response from yonder deity, she impatiently interrupted, pointing with a grand, queenly gesture, which at any other time would have delighted his artist's eye to the statue of Nemesis in the cella. Meanwhile, Gula had also turned her face toward Hermon, and he now addressed her, saying with a faint tone of reproach, And did hatred lead you also, Gula, to this sanctuary at midnight, to implore the goddess to destroy me in her wrath? The young mother rose and pointed to Ledska, exclaiming, She desires it. And I, he asked gently, have I really done so much evil? She raised her hand to her brow as if bewildered. Her glance fell on the artist's troubled face, and lingered there for a short time. Then her eyes wandered to Ledska, and from her to the goddess, and finally back again to the sculptor. Meanwhile Hermann saw how her young figure was trembling, and, before he had time to address a soothing word to her, she sobbed aloud, crying to Ledska, you are not a mother my child he rescued it from the flames i will not and i cannot i will no longer pray for his misfortune she drew her veil over her pretty tear-stained face as she spoke and darted lightly down the temple steps close beside him to seek shelter in her parents house which had been unwillingly open to the cast-off wife but now afforded her a home rich in affection Immeasurably bitter scorn was depicted in Ledska's features as she gazed after Gula. She did not appear to notice Hermon, when at last he appealed to her, and briefly urged her to ask the old enchantress on the owl's nest for a remedy for the wounded gall. She again leaned against the post of the cellar door, extended both arms with passionate fervor toward the goddess, and remained standing there motionless, deaf to his petition. His blood seethed in his veins, and he was tempted to go nearer, and force her to hear him. But before he had ascended the first of the flight of steps, leading to the Proneos, he heard the footsteps of the men, who were bearing the wounded warrior after him. 
they must not see him here with one of their own countrywomen at this hour and manly pride forbade him to address her again as a supplicant so he went back to the road mounted his horse and rode on without vouchsafing a word of farewell to the woman who was invoking destruction upon his head as he did so his eyes again rested on the stern face of nemesis and the wheels whose turning determined the destiny of men at her feet assailed by horrible fears and overpowered by presentiments of evil he pursued his way through the darkness perhaps myrtilus had succumbed to the terrible attack which must have visited him in such a storm and life without his friend would be bereft of half its charm orphaned poor a struggler who had gained no complete victory had been rich only in disappointments to him in spite of his conviction that he was a genuine artist and was fighting for a good cause now he knew that he had also lost the woman by whose assistance he was certain of a great success in his own much disputed course and letzka if any one was right in expecting a favorable hearing from the goddess who punished injustice he did not think of daphne again until he was approaching the place where her tents had stood and the remembrance of her fell like a ray of light into his darkened soul yet on that spot had also been erected the wooden platform from which althea had shown him the transformation into the spider and the recollection of the foolish error into which the thracian had drawn him disagreeably clouded the pleasant thought of daphne End of chapter sixteen